Welcome to Ophthalmology and Beyond, the Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society's podcast. Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society is the largest state association of 3000 ophthalmologists from Western Indian state of Maharashtra. This podcast is by members of MOS for the ophthalmologist community of the world covering a broad range of topics concerning the science, art and practice of ophthalmology and ophthalmologists. This series is an initiative under the current leadership of MOS Honorary President Dr Jignesh Daswala Honorary Secretary Dr Rajesh Joshi Honorary Treasurer Dr Rajiv Mundra and Chairman Scientific Committee Dr Ragini Parekh Hope you like this series Do remember to follow it on your favorite podcast app You may send your feedback to MOS Secretary 7 at gmail.com. Happy listening. A big hello and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology and Beyond, the MOS podcast. From me, Dr. Mandar Paranspe, podcast coordinator, to all the listeners. for a very special episode on squint which is called practical practice in which listeners will get some really practical tips on handling common squints we see in our day to day practice we are indeed very fortunate to have two very very eminent expert guests on this episode and equally fortunate to have a young pediatric ophthalmologist as a anchor for this episode The first guest is Dr. Pradeep Sharma. His name is synonymous with strabismus in this part of the world. He had a glorious career at All India Institute of Medical Sciences, New Delhi, retiring as professor and section head of pediatric ophthalmology and neuroophthalmology. He has trained at the Jules Stein Eye Hospital. He has mentored generations of pediatric ophthalmologists. He now serves as director pediatric and neuroophthalmology. at the center for sight new delhi but i would add here that perhaps he is known better for two more things one is his book strabismus simplified which is literally like a bhagavad gita of strabismus for most of the postgraduates and practitioners and equally importantly for his humble and down to earth nature in spite of his colossal status in indian ophthalmology we welcome you sir for this special episode Thank you, Mandar. It's a pleasure to be with you. Our second guest is from the host organization from the city of Mumbai, Dr. Himalini Samant. She is trained at the world-renowned Shankar Netralay Chennai in pediatric and neuroophthalmology. She is in private practice for the last two decades and also serves as an associate professor at Sir J J Group of Hospitals, Mumbai. she has also co-authored a book dk notes in ophthalmology for undergraduates which is very popular welcome dr himalini for this special episode thank you sir our anchor for today's episode is dr nishita beke borde she is a fellowship trained pediatric ophthalmologist from hb desai eye hospital pune and presently has her own private practice 
welcome dr nishita to this special episode thank you sir and i request you to take over and make us a bit more squint wise so all all yours now nishita before we begin i would request our honorary president dr jignesh taswala to welcome our esteemed guest uh welcome dr pradeep pradeep sharma sir and himalini samant you have readily agreed for this mos podcast we are extremely grateful <laughs> for being at this orders with us thank you very much sir and over to you nishita thank you sir thank you mos for giving me the, the opportunity uh, so we'll begin with the podcast on strabismus uh, my first question would be to uh, Uh, Dr. Pradeep Pradeep Sharma, sir. So I want to ask, as a general ophthalmologist, what are the basic skills one must acquire to examine a pediatric patient with squint? Uh, for being a pediatric ophthalmologist, the first and the foremost skill is that you should be having a child-friendly attitude. So that is the first thing that you have to generate in yourself. That is, uh, I mean, ophthalmology. You may practice any way, but you have to have a very child-friendly attitude. second thing is your your clinic that has to become a child friendly place you may have some toys all over when the child comes in he should feel at home it's like his home and he would like to play with those toys so that would be in your clinic that should be there then we come to the uh, testing uh, equipments that you may require so we, we would be doing like sensory testing and the motor testing for that and some are basics which are always necessary now for testing the child's vision or the ability to look at things or deviations we need to have toys which are going to have accommodative control you may have to have several toys so that uh, the attention of the child is maintained all through because we all know that children's attention is going to be very uh, fast changing so you need to have attractive toys which are accommodative controls and you can use them for both distance fixation and for near fixation and then you can check the eye movements in different directions for testing the binocular vision uh, i would say that one should have one is basic bogolny glasses which may be tell, telling us about the ability the child would have a suppression or binocularity and the other is a simple stereopsis testing for near i would say anybody who is indulging in pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus in today's times he should have at least one stereo test preferably a tno with red and green glasses dissociation which i find is very sturdy for measurements we should have prism bars loose prism some maybe 45 and 30 loose prisms and prism bars for both horizontal and vertical which we can have a quick measurement for the child hirschbergs is not something that we will ever recommend for measurements except for maybe neonates or infants when we are not able to do anything with the prism bar so these are some of the basic things which we should have with us when we are dealing with a child uh, and pediatric ophthalmology is being done just just okay. to add to that i would say that the most important skill which every postgraduate should learn is a good retinoscopy if you do not know how to do a good retinoscopy you will never be able to assess a refractive error in a toddler or somebody who's not going to be able to sit on a uh, auto refractometer so i think retinoscopy is a very very important okay. skill that should be stressed on uh, my next question will be again to dr pradeep sharma sir sir how do you grade anisometropic amblyopia depending on vision taken with snellen chart and how to initiate patching depending on the same 
So anisometric amblyopia, we are basically saying anything which is more than 2.5 diopters between the two eyes, especially if it is hypermetropia and uh, for myopia also. But if it's an astigmatism, even anything more than 1.5 diopter could be causing anisometropic amblyopia. So that is something which will be grading on the basis of the uh, refractive error that we have uh, come to know. As far as the vision is concerned, usually the visual equity will be more than two lines uh, difference in order to be considered for a significant amblyopia. And uh, that is what you will see to start with. And as far as starting the treatment, the first thing is that we should give proper glasses. Now, what we mean by proper glasses is having a uh, age-appropriate cycloplegic test. Now, when we say age-appropriate cycloplegic test, under five, I would say that atropine ointment should be used. Uh, you may use it twice a day for three days or three times a day for two days. That's your choice. But you should use atropine ointment, which is uh, preferably ointment, not drops. Because if you have drops, you have to give special instructions to the mother to block the canaliculus or the nasolacrimal duct because the systemic absorption can be problematic. So the ointment that way is uh, safer. And there also you should advise that it should be used only a rice grain size. Uh, make the mother aware of this fact that if uh, there is too much of atropine, if you just put a strip of atropine, it may cause fever or rashes on the body. And usually we have seen not a single uh, child having a problem of atropine toxicity if it has been properly counseled. Uh, in older children, above five years, then we would go in for home atropine eye drops to uh, cause the cycloplegia. So once we have got a proper cycloplegic refraction done, then we need to prescribe fully. That is important. And uh, once we are given the prescription, then we, uh, we should examine the child again. So how much is the vision with that prescription? Usually we say there is an optical adaptation period. So um, one month of uh, proper correction with the glasses is given, you reassess the vision. And if uh, there is still a significant amblyopia, then we start patching. So the patching that we nowadays prefer is a six hours uh, patching on the dominant eye. Uh, the uh, amblyopic eye is preferred to be fixated and also given a task of active vision exercises to improve the ability to uh, improve the vision. So these two things should be done. And then we have to follow up every one month and see that the recovery is happening. With proper compliance, we usually see within three months, most of the amblyopia would have recovered. And you may require a one or two months to have another improvement. And if the vision is not improving in two or three consecutive monthly visits, then we have to think whether there's a poor compliance which is happening, or is it something like a refractory amblyopia? So what about cyclopentolate? Do you use cyclopentolate in any of your patients? Yeah, I would usually desist from using cyclopentolate, especially I have seen that in Indian conditions with the Asian eyes, uh, there is a possibility of neurological uh, problems. I have seen it myself happening in uh, a few children and I would avoid. Homotropine we have used in uh, RP center aim for almost like last 40 years and we haven't encountered a, a single side effect with that. So I usually use a 2% homotropine for the older children and up to five years, I use atropine 1% ointment. Dr. Nishita, just one thing that I'd like to add to whatever Dr. Pradeep Sharma said in, in my private practice from the experience that I have, 
you have to always tell the parents that if you're using atropine or homeatropine, the vision is going to be blurred for the next 15 days. Because very often, if you forget to tell this, you have patients coming back and getting angry with you that doctor, my child can't go to school or is having a lot of glare. Why have you not told us this? So, but by the way, this is a very useful thing because in this two, three weeks time, these hypermetropic corrections are easily accepted by the child. Very true, sir. Very true. So that is something which is very handy. In fact, I have seen that in children, sometimes who are not wearing their hypermetropic correction, you can start using atropine ointment nightly. And with the concurrence of the mother, of course, that we have given this so that he starts using his glasses. So yeah, that's a side effect which can be of use. Yeah. That is true. And, and one other common practice that I see amongst the general ophthalmologists is that instead of using the atropine, home atropine, or like what Sir said, they have a habit of using Tropica Cell Plus. So it should be emphasized that Tropica Cell Plus is a pure midriatic. It has no cycloplegic effect at all. So Correct. please avoid using that. It's a variable cycloplegia. So do one you should... prefer using... Yeah. So do you prefer using Tropica Cell Plus as uh, uh, maybe in late teenagers who are already known myopic or uh, like... No, I, I think uh, what Himalini was saying is what I would say that one should not depend on Tropica Cell as a cycloplegic agent because its ability to cause cycloplegia is variable and the duration is variable. So you wouldn't know when the peak effect has come. Correct. So I would generally avoid using a, a Tropica Cell for a cycloplegic effect. Okay. So, okay. so what she, what Nishita, I think, was trying to ask you is that for an adult who's a known myope, yeah, they're also been following I, up with you for a long time. Would you also, would still... I, I would still use uh, homeatropine with the okay. Uh, okay. if we are wanting to use. Otherwise, you may do a dry retinoscopy if you think it's an adult. You don't require cyclobiologic. Okay. Uh, so, do you also give homeatropine? Uh, like you said, that atropine ointment helps in optical okay. adaptation. So, do you also give homeatropine as HS dose in all those kids who have hypermetropic error or as higher astigmatic error for adaptation? Yes, you can use homeatropine, but it may not be a nightly dose then. It may have to use uh, in the daytime twice at least because the effect okay. of homeatropine will not last for 24 hours effectively. Okay. It will be six to eight hours. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, sir, uh, when the patching is started, when do you exactly call and when the compliance is assured uh, from parents? So, when do you actually call a patient refractory to patching or refractory to amla therapy? And then, uh, do you stop patching or wean it, or how how should one proceed in such case? Yeah. So, Nishita, as I think uh, I had said that we should be following up monthly basis, and if we find on three consecutive monthly visits the vision is not improving then we will be saying that there is a, uh, a refractory amblyopia provided compliance is there. So compliance both for glasses and for patching. So this has to be ensured. So if you find amblyopia is not recovering in the uh, visits, then you should reinforce compliance. And compliance, I will tell you, is not something which is uh, difficult. If it is properly uh, explained to the child, the motivation has to be there. You have to make him aware that this is his vision, his life, and not something that is meant for his mother or uh, for the doctor. And if you explain to them in this many words, they usually, the kids nowadays are smart enough. I have seen they are very, very compliant. Secondly, you have to tell them about patching. That look, if suppose your friend has a fracture in his arm, he would use a plaster. Now, does he remove the plaster in between? And will he be okay? 
then they understand yes this is something which is meaningful and that period is important if you remove a plaster the fracture would not heal so same way you need to explain so motivation comes first is you have to be motivated enough for the success and i can tell you yes if proper compliance is done in uh, all these anisometric amblyops you will get full recovery of the vision even if we are starting little late if they are uh, good compliant patients so what has been your oldest patient for amblyopia treatment where you started amblyopia treatment your oldest patient around 21 22 years of age which so you uh, always give a trial so uh, so what i go is that you should see one what is the uh, presenting vision if the presenting vision is less than 6 by 60 then his ability to work with that eye after patching the good eye is very difficult okay so then it may not be workable so the vision has to be better than 6 by 60 secondly what is the type of amblyopia if it is an anisometropic amblyopia we know that this is a later onset and this is milder compared to a strabismic amblyopia or a stimulus deprivation amblyopia because of a monocular cataract which has been long standing so if we know these two things we can ourselves be first convinced that yes amblyopia therapy will work and you can start even at 21 22 years of age explaining to the patient that if he's motivated enough he will have really very uh, uh, good results ma'am any himalini uh, ma'am i want to ask you any you are experience regarding dicoptic therapy in case of uh, amblyopia which is refractory to treatment it is a refractory treatment therapy. but i haven't i don't use dicoptics very commonly i think patching remains the gold standard treatment in my practice and that is what i follow and i've seen fairly good results like what dr pradeep sharma said that if the compliance is good and if you nicely counsel the patients then i don't think you need any of these other Uh, therapies okay okay but dicoptics is coming in now binocular vision therapy and we did some studies comparing uh, dicoptics with the uh, occlusion therapy also and we have seen that in anisometropic amblyopia we had presented an apos 2019 i think and uh, in this study we have seen that anisometropic amblyopia uh, recovers very well with binocular uh, vision therapy or dicoptics also Uh, the advantage with the dicoptics that we saw in that group was that they had better stereopsis compared to the occlusion group which is i think logical and understandable that occlusion is working against the binocular uh, vision development so this is but yes this is only going to be workable in an isometropic amblyops as good because in strabismic cases it's difficult to give binocular vision therapy unless you first correct the squint uh, moving on to the squint part access Uh, sir i want to ask uh, what what does what are the steps you would follow for evaluation of an infant who is 8 months old and presenting with esotropia since 2 months what is the first step in the management that one should take so if a child comes at the age of 8 uh, months uh, and he's giving a history of 2 months of esotropia first is that we have to see whether it is a true esotropia or a pseudo esotropia many children at this age will be presented by the pediatricians and the parents that the child appears to have a squint esotropia especially they say that when the child looks on either side he appears to have a very gross squint so this is not uncommon to see because of a telecanthus and epicanthic folds which may give an apparent esotropia look so first is that you should uh, be confirming uh, with a simple cover test you can use your thumb 
just cover it because the child may not allow much. You can just cover and see if the eye is moving behind your cover or not. So if that is there, then it's a true isotropia. The second thing that you like to know in these cases is whether it is a variable or a constant ET. If there is a variable ET, six months onwards, we do see accommodative isotropia is also possible. So that should also be kept in mind, or at least there is a possibility of a accommodative element in these cases. So an atropine refraction is a must in any child who is suspected to have an isotropia, even though you may be thinking it's a pseudo-isotropia. Generally, I say there is no harm in giving an atropine refraction because it may be that at other times there is a isotropia because of an accommodative refractive error. So a proper atropine refraction, which we talked about earlier, should be done. And then, of course, proper prescription of glasses and then uh, patching alternate uh, day to ensure that the equality of visual chance is given to each eye. And then you can even plan a surgery if there is a constant squint, which is uh, definitely more than 30 prisms. Then it's known that usually more than 30 prisms of ESO uh, is not going to get corrected and you need to uh, do a surgery, provided it's non-accommodative. So I think just mind my words that First is that ensure that the accommodative element is taken care of. And if it's a constant ET, then you have to plan a surgery within the first year because we have seen that the basic thing is early alignment. And these two words are important. They have to be early and alignment, not just early surgery. You may do a surgery, but if it's not aligning, it's of no added advantage to the child. So you have to ensure an early alignment. And that would definitely guarantee a better binocular vision outcome. So what's been your youngest patient you've operated on an infantile esotropia? I think seven months. Seven months. So are, are there any technical uh, or a, any difference in operating at seven months and one and a half years of age? Anything that you would like to tell the audience? So first is, of course, that we have to be more than uh, sure about the uh, part that it is not an accommodative element. The problem with these children may be that they're not wearing glasses regularly. They will be less compliant. So here you are likely to be uh, in an error because you may have felt that you gave glasses, but the child actually has not worn glasses and relaxed his accommodation. So you have to be doubly sure about this part. Uh, then if suppose you have seen, uh, the, you're measuring the deviation, as I said, prism bar measurement may be a little difficult at this age because they are so much moving around and they will not be able to accept uh, your fixation toys also. So at times you may use prisms, maybe the loose prisms and have an uh, idea and uh, then quantify it with your uh, own experience that okay with the Hirschberg this much is left over and this is something likely to be there. So these are the I think uh, little uh, challenging situations that we have to take care when we are dealing with very small children. Okay. Um, anything you would like to add on? Just that if you're operating on an infantile esotropia, the, you have to measure from the limbus, uh, the amount of recession that you want to perform and not really from the actual muscle insertion because that would be variable in a uh, small infant. So that's the only tip if you're operating on a young child. Yeah. But also in the fact, Dr. Hamalini, just Hamalini. to add that in these children, you may have to reduce your dose. Dosage. Because these are smaller dose. eyeball. So the effect that will come is going to be much more then what will be uh, your dose for an adult? So okay. you need to uh, uh, re re reduce the dose that you have. And usually we would not be doing more than five or 5.5 millimeters in on the medial rectus in most of these isotopes. So ma'am, my next question would be to you. Uh, what are the steps you follow for evaluation of a toddler who is three years old and is coming with isotropia? 
So again, you know, uh, the basic examination of the squint remains the same, like what Dr. Pradeep Sharma uh, mentioned. The only difference though is that a three-year-old, you should try and elicit uh, vision. So, you know, most of these um, Paswami charts, vision charts, which you have, they have shapes in them. So you, you can, you know, try and document a distant uh, Snellen's vision using these shapes. So try and do that. The second thing you have to ascertain is whether this squint is intermittent or whether it's constant. If it's intermittent, it goes more in favor of an accommodative element. If it's a constant esotropia, there's a possibility that this could be an acute concomitant esotropia, in which case your management will differ. Basic examination again remains the same where you have to document the squint, see if it's alternating or no. Second thing would be to measure the, try and test the extraocular movements. Try and elicit stereopsis if any, particularly if it's an intermittent conversion squint. Again, most important part of the evaluation is your retinoscopy. Retinoscopy is the most important part in any patient with squint. So you don't forget that. Most of the times when a patient comes at three years of age and you're suspecting an accommodative element, you need to dilate like what Sir said uh, with atropine. Use that cycloplegic, document your cycloplegic refraction and of course fundus examination. Then based on what your findings are, you will do your next step of management whether you want to give glasses or whether it's a constant esotropia and you want to operate, etc. So, ma'am, what is exactly full prescription uh, the audience would like to so know? The dictum, the dictum is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pradeep, sir, that if you have any amount of hypermetropia with an esotropia, prescribe the full uh, refraction. So a lot of times, you know, questions are asked that do you subtract for the cycloplegic agent? Do you subtract for your working distance? So the answer is that, yes, I do subtract for my working distance, but I don't subtract anything for the cycloplegic agent that I'm using. So for example, if I'm getting a cycloplegic retinoscopy of a plus three, I'm going to prescribe the entire plus three to the patient. Okay. So you only deduct the distance and not the cycloplegic? Yeah, I, I don't. Not I, for the cycloplegic. Yeah. Yes. So anything you would like to add on, uh, Pradeep Sharma, sir? Yeah, I think that's right. Whenever an isotrope is there, then we would give the full prescription on the base of your retinoscopy. Uh, if it's not an isotrope and you are giving it for other reasons, then yes, you can reduce for the cycloplegic part and you can give it. Because in cases of isotropia, we do not want to falter and leave an accommodative element which we might end up operating. So I want to ask, uh, once we give glasses, we follow up the kid after six weeks. Even if after, oh, oh, after that also, if the squint remains, what will be your management? Like if it is an anisometric amylopia with accommodative isotropia. So, so we've given the full glasses. So on my follow-up visit, I'm going to ask the parents that what is the adaptation to the glasses? So I will take a feedback from the mother. Is a child wearing the glasses, not wearing the glasses, etc. The atropin that I've used for the cycloplegia is helping me for uh, uh, the, helping the child to get adapted to the glasses. So that is that is a good uh, plus point by of using atropin like Dr. Pradeep Sharma said. After that, I'm going to uh, start the patching. So if, if the mother says that no, the child has been wearing the glasses and I still find a difference, then I'm going to start patching. So you patch the fixating eye for about two or three hours a day. Emphasize that the child has to do some kind of near visual tasks with that. Okay. And then I would follow up once in three, four months. So ma'am, and when in such cases uh, you give bifocals, what are the prerequisites for giving bifocals in uh, isotropia? So bifocals are indicated in an accommodative isotropia only when you're suspecting a high AC by A ratio. 
so uh, you what you do is that you call the child on a follow up visit you look at the squint over the glasses the squint is well corrected for distance and near that means you know that there is no high ac by ratio and this is the end of the treatment giving the glasses but if you on a follow up visit you see that the child has the isotropia has been corrected for distance but not been corrected for near you put a plus 3 in front of the glasses and see that with the plus 3 is the isotropia getting corrected or no if if the isotropia decreases or gets corrected with the plus 3 then i know that the ac by a ratio is high in which case i would like to give bifocals i usually prescribe an add of about plus 2.5 okay and and i also stress that they have to make that executive type of bifocals which are normally passes uh, through the center of the pupil Okay. Or or a cryptoc, but a large D. Okay. Sir, anything you would like to add on, sir? So I think she very nicely uh, answered that question that we have to be seeing for the deviations with the full correction for distance first. If the on distance itself we find there is a residual isotropia, that would mean that this is requiring either a more plus that we have missed on the refractive error, or it's a non-accommodative isotropia for distance. that will not uh, be corrected by glasses and we will have to give uh, either prisms or surgery depending on how much is it but if you find for distance it's fully corrected and now there is an iso left on near uh, 33 cm with an accommodative target now here that's important that you use an accommodative target uh, and not just a flashlight or uh, just something like yeah. uh, pen tip and all you need to have a accommodative target thing. and then you will elicit that suddenly the convergence axis isotropia comes in and if that is there then you can check with uh, the least amount of add that is required so it may be plus 2 2.5 or 3 depending upon the child that is indirectly telling you the ac by ratio also so you can then uh, do that the minimum add required should be prescribed so that he is uh, comfortable with that so these are the things and whatever is left over for distance fixation isotropia you would have to give prisms now that prisms will also be valid for near and distance both Okay. And up to fourteen prisms, I think we can give ground prisms. That means up to seven prisms on each eye maximum. We can give as grounded prisms, but more than that, then we use usually the Fresnel prisms, the Fresnel as more people will call it, Fresnel prisms. So would you be uh, keeping worth four dot test for near uh, the fusion response must for starting bifocals? Uh, not really i mean what for dot test for near is something that uh, i usually don't use in practice uh, i usually have other things to do for uh, controlling the thing for near targets maybe there and uh, for as i said bagolni glasses are my end point for knowing the uh, binocular vision and stereopsis so i would usually use stereopsis much more often i mean uh, before we start the treatment after the treatment you will be able to gauge the improvement either it's an anisometropic amblyopia or is it uh, the esophoria you will know whether it is uh, allowing the stereopsis or not even in small children who are not going to be allowing me to do a tno test i would usually play with them with the langs2 pencil test and that i find also is a very good stereopsis test it is a very very sturdy test no person can ever pass that test with one eye closed this is something which you can test it and after the surgery if you have a doubt whether you have got full correction or not just do a uh, two pencil test horizontally held and you will see that yes if the child has achieved this the binocular vision has been restored 
so then you can go on with the ETA notice. Uh, so, sir, uh, my next question will be to again uh, Himalini, ma'am. Ma'am, we'll move on to uh, XT now. Uh, if you have an infant, if I have an infant patient with a constant exotropia, how would you evaluate and manage? The basic again remains the same, which is document the fundus, document the retinoscopy. If there is a minus refractive error, then I, yes, I would like to prescribe the entire amount of minus uh, refractive error to the exotropic child. Apart from that, document the extraocular movements. If the squint is freely alternating, then go ahead and operate because you're seeing it's a constant exotropia. If it's an intermittent exotropia, then your management would differ. So here, I think I would like to just stress one more point that in children, in infants, or maybe young children, if they are having an exotropia, always think about the neurological problem which may be underlying. Mm -hmm. uh, an exotropia is an indicator of uh, a neurological problem. And if you have a developmental delay uh, also, uh, then imaging should be done in these children to rule out any neurological problems. So these may be constant exotropias, by the way, or even intermittent. But if you have an exotropic infant, there is very good likelihood that he may have underlying neurological problems. So before we think of surgery, we usually do imaging in these cases. These are these committant squints in which we will still do an imaging to rule out a neurological problem. They may yes. be having hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or some uh, minor neurological deficits which may be causing it. Again, the neuroimaging would be an MRI of uh, choice, not a CT scan. Uh, would, would you agree with that, Dr. Pradeep? Yeah, you may do an MRI, but sometimes if you find that uh, it's difficult for a, a small child to be put into that, then you, okay, I wouldn't mind the CT also to get a, a feel of what is the basic problem. And, and would you reduce your surgical dosage in infantile exotropias as well? Correct. Of course. Even there also, because the eyeball size is what is the problem. So even for the lateral rectus recession, when we are doing, we need to reduce. Otherwise, you may end up having consecutive exotropias. Uh, sir, how early do you operate alternate exotropia in a child, like less than one year or at one year, or do you give patching and alternate patching and then again? Mm -hmm. So in exotropias also, the same rule applies that we need to have early alignment, just like for esotropias. The only difference is okay. that we need to rule out any neurological problems. We need to see if it is an intermittent or a constant. If it is a constant exotrope, even uh, eight-month-old child, I have operated. So there, because we want them, the eyes to again restore their binocular alignment, then only binocular stereopsis can be possible. Otherwise, you may have equal vision in each eye. Uh, mind you, when generally we say a common axiom that amblyopia is seen in esotropes and exotropes, we don't see amblyopia. It may be correct mostly because the fact that there is a possibility of each eye being used on the literally uh, placement. But this doesn't give you binocular vision still. So even though they may not have amblyopia, they are likely to have loss of binocular vision. So we need to do an early alignment provided we have ensured that there is no underlying problem of neurological kind, immaturity and all those. And secondly, it's not an intermittent squint. If it's an intermittent squint, the uh, thing changes because then we have to go by how much time is he manifesting? If it is less than 50% time, you better defer the surgery. And if it is more than 50% time that the child is having a manifest exotropia, then of course, surgery should be done at that time. Sir, do you follow the same in case of premature kids who are, say, let's say 31 weeks, uh, uh, 1.7 kg and who have undergone ROP screening? 
you know, present earlier at, like at eight months with alternate exotropia. Do you follow the same protocol, early alignment? Yeah, of course, the same protocol is to be followed with a little added thing when you use the term ROP. Now, here we have to become a little more uh, squintellectual. ROP cases can be having a pseudo-exotropia because of a drag macula. So these partially regressed ROPs can have a dragging or an ectopic macula, which can give rise to a pseudo-exotropia. So you can be fooled. You may jump and say, oh, there is a large exotropia. But the moment you cover and see that, oh, the eye is all still fixing. And if you peep into the fundus, you find there is a central fixation. Only thing is that the center is eccentric. So uh, in these cases, you may be wrong in doing a surgery uh, because there is a, a pseudo-exotropia or an ectopic macula which is causing it. Ma'am, any uh, um, inputs from you? Uh, no, I would agree with whatever Sir said. But you have to keep, even after you operate, you have to keep monitoring for the refractive error because the myopia is very common in these children and it's progressive pathological myopia. So you have to keep uh, monitoring them. Uh, moving on to intermittent exotropia. Uh, Ma'am, I would like to ask in toddlers with intermittent exotropia with minimal to no refractive error and with fair or good vision, how you how do you guide parents like NCS score three or less than three? No, so I'm very conservative when it comes to intermittent divergent uh, squints, particularly you, you, the, the age group that you mentioned and you have to assess the control. So like Sir said, if the control is good, don't be ag uh, aggressive. Be conservative in your approach. Uh, intermittent divergent squint patients have good stereopsis, the ones who have good control. So there should not be any hurry in operating them. There are varying views on some people say that to give patching uh, in uh, patients with intermittent di uh, divergent squints with good control. But my feeling is that somebody who has a good control by giving them patching, you're actually breaking their uh, fusion. So there is this, there is a little controversy surrounding that whether to give the patching or to not give the patching. So I personally keep a close watch, but I don't do anything. I keep monitoring the refractive error and if there is any then i would correct that yeah i would totally agree with dr himalini that patching is something which i don't recommend uh, unless there is an amblyopia so if these ids cases have an anisometropic amblyopia then we need to give a patching just to uh, correct that amblyopia but not for an intermittent divergent squint which is having equal vision in both the eyes so there i totally agree with dr himalini that patching would be actually working against the fusion so why should we do that? Although there are some people who do that. Okay. So do you give over minus glasses? And if yes, uh, up to what uh, up to what uh, adapters do you give over minus? So over minus uh, glasses I have used in very very few cases, uh, provided uh, there is a high AC by ratio, and uh, there is a reason for them to defer a surgery that we know that uh, needs to be done, but we need to defer it. For example, I remember like um, there was a pregnant mother whose earlier child, uh, older child wanted uh, an IDS surgery, but she wanted to defer it for a few months. So there I used uh, uh, the over minus therapy and it works. So it works, but the, uh, the problem here is that one, it has to be high AC by ratio. Whatever over minus you're doing, let's say it's a 18 or 20 prism diapters, for 20 prism diapters with an AC by ratio of, let's say, a normal 1.5, you'll require four diapters. It's not possible that a child would be able to be wearing over minus of four. So you have to see if there is a high AC by ratio of eight, then for 24, it will be just three diapters. So that works. 
you can't give more than two or three diopters of O minus therapy uh, because it will then cause eye strain because of an accommodative convergence being overused. So these are the reasons that you can use it for shorter times and for deferring a surgery, provided there is a high AC by ratio. Correct. Ma'am, uh, your experience regarding uh, giving vision therapy in intermittent exotropia, do you give? No, I don't give any vision therapy in intermittent exotropia unless there's some amblyopia, then I will do the patching. I don't give any vision therapy. Okay. Any brock strings or any cat card exercises? No, I don't do any of that. I don't do any of that. Okay. Okay, okay, ma'am. My next question would be to you. Uh, what are the steps to be followed in case of adult coming with acute onset sex now palsy? What would you look for and when would you intervene surgically? So an adult with an isolated six nerve palsy, the most uh, important part of the examination would be a fundus. So if I find disc edema in the fundus, it means that the six nerve palsy is a false localizing sign and the entire management changes with, um, uh, you know, keeping in mind that this is papilledema. If it is an isolated six nerve palsy with a normal fundus, then my commonest uh, causes are, depending on the age group, it would be either demyelinating, infective, inflammatory or ischemic. So I would definitely do an MRI with a contrast. Uh, if I find the cause, then I need to treat the cause. If I don't find the cause, then for example, let's say it's an ischemic palsy. I will wait for it to recover on its own. Let's say a palsy does not recover on its own beyond six months. Then I would document the angles. Let's say on the first visit, again, call the patient, again, document the angles at, uh, you know, maybe at three and six monthly intervals. And if I find that the angles haven't changed, then yes, you can go ahead and operate. There are people who in the intervening period do inject Botox. That is also an option. Uh, so it depends on what you prefer in your practice. Okay, okay. Sir, any inputs from you? I think she's very comprehensively answered. Just to add that uh, in addition to the fundus for peplidema, we should also look for fields. Uh, if nothing else, just do a confrontation fields. And if you have the slightest doubt, even an HVF, Humphrey visual fields, even if you don't have a big uh, screen uh, field testing, Humphrey visual fields will detect the problem that we are mostly going to encounter. So we have come across sometimes people having a, a bitemporal hemianopia, which was there along with that. So we need to do the fields in these children uh, who are uh, or uh, adults who are having a problem of uh, six nerve palsy. Second thing she mentioned about the ischemic causes. And there again, I agree with her mostly that we should uh, rule out the ischemic causes, uh, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, lipids, uh, triglycerides, homocysteinemia, or a coronary artery disease thing. So these are uh, in a study which we had done, we found that diabetes mellitus either singly or in combination with that was the most common a cause of the ischemic mononeuropathies that we usually encounter. And the good thing is that they usually start healing by three weeks and by three months, they have almost completely healed. So that's a, a good message that we can give. And many a times the parents are going to love, uh, the patients are going to love this uh, answer that yes, you told us that uh, we'll recover and there was such a great hope that you gave us. So this is something which we should be, once we are knowing that it's an ischemic, you can give them a better prognosis and ask them to follow up. And if it doesn't, then you can uh, give Botox maybe after uh, one or two months, if it is, but never give Botox in ischemic cases prior to two months. Many people have seen claim success of Botox in ischemic cases, which is in any case going to recover by, by three months time. In the intervening period when they have diplopia, 
they may uh, have to be counseled for that. And what you can do is a simple thing which we find very useful. If they are wearing glasses, ask them to just apply a coat of nail varnish, a transparent nail varnish. Ask them to borrow it from their wife and have a nail varnish put on the back of the glasses for the period because this is something which is cosmetically not visible to others except for the blurring or diplopia not being there. So this is something which is very handy and it can be easily removed with the nail polish remover later on. So this is something which, uh, but an occluder may not be so cosmetically acceptable. So I just wanted to add on one thing that in case of six nerve palsy, when we see the fundus, ideally we should not dilate the pupil uh, as far as possible. We should see undilated because if we dilate it and if it is a false localizing sign, that is taken as some pupillary changes by neurologists and they interpret it likewise. So at times it happens in ICUs that yes. if you dilate it and if it gets unequally dilated, they take it as no, it's the brainstem is also involved now and maybe early intervention is uh, taken from the side. Right, I think that's a good thing. But yeah, you can always document it uh, that yes, it was dilated. So yes, yes. either document it or don't document, uh, don't dilate and do, uh, observe. Right. It. Okay, so my next uh, question would be, sir, to you: uh, What are uh, your uh, management protocols for adult uh, adult with a third nerve palsy? So for third nerve palsy, again, the some things are common, like looking for the fundus and the fields. Uh, here in third nerve, there is a possibility of a. Uh, uh, imaging in which you have to look for contrast specifically and angiography will be much more important because an aneurysm is very commonly associated with the third nerve palsy. Uh, so one should uh, do that in keep in mind, especially if a patient comes with a headache and if he says that, okay, I had an excruciating headache to start with and this happened, then uh, it's almost like they may be having an aneurysm which has suddenly bloated up and caused this. So that is something which we should immediately ask them to have an angiography done uh, with the contrast, of course, and that will tell us about that. So investigate for the ischemic causes again in third nerve pulses. There's another handy thing, which is, uh, I mean, aware, most of you may be aware that there is a pupil which is spared in 70% of the cases of the third nerve pulses affected by ischemia. But here the catch is that, okay, it's not all ischemic cases that will be having a pupil sparing. 30% even in Thompson's study was shown to be having an involvement. Secondly, partial third nerve palsies may be pupil sparing, even they uh, are compressive. So both ways it has to be kept in mind. So partial third nerve palsies, pupil sparing does not always mean it's an ischemic mononeuropathy. On the other hand, a very, uh, uh, I mean, some cases of ischemic also may have a pupillary involvement if there are very uh, strong, I mean, high ischemic problems. So these are the things that we have to keep in mind in third nerve pulses as far as the investigations are concerned, which are common. Uh, for, as far as management is concerned, third nerve palsy is a very difficult uh, job to do. Uh, you have to follow up. They may keep on recovering even by six or nine or 12 months sometimes. And you have to also look for the fact that they may start developing an aberrant regeneration. So after six months time, once the regeneration has happened, they may start saying that, oh, mitosis has improved. And they're very happy only to be disturbed that on looking down also the lid re remains retracted. So we need to counsel these people that an aberrant regeneration is happening. So, but which may be helpful at the time of uh, surgery that we can take care of this aberrant regeneration by operating on the good contralateral eye to correct the ptosis in abduction as well as correct the deviations. But yeah, 
surgical management of third nerve palsy is a, a real uh, challenge and each case will have to be tackled very very differently depending on which muscles are involved which muscles are left for uh, for us to manage but yes many a time we are happy to give them a diplopia free position in the primary position and a slight down gaze if not in all the gazes this one one thing that i want to add from the neuro ophthalmology point of view is when you see an isolated uh, sixth nerve or a third nerve and if the pupils are normal there is a good possibility that this could be myasthenia so don't forget about myasthenia gravis so uh, the uh, myasthenia gravis can present as anything and we've Quite i've true. seen patients of third nerve palsy also presenting as a myasthenia correct but of course your pupils have to be spared if you moment you see a pupil involvement or a fundus involvement it cannot be myasthenia ma'am how uh, how many cases in your practice in case of isolated third nerve palsy you have seen evolving into orbital lobe syndrome or idiopathic uh, or that will myositis or anything like that so uh, dishita i am in private practice so i don't see that many third nerve palsies i do have an attachment uh, to one teaching hospital so let's say in a month i would see probably one case of third nerve palsy which uh, which okay. probably is an orbital apex or something but the commonest cause for third nerve palsy or a sixth nerve palsy in my practice has been ischemia okay okay ma'am my so next we, question would be we may get these cases of uh, supraorbital fissure syndromes or orbital apex syndromes and uh, these are the only situations i mean we have to remember if there is they are usually having a, a pain uh, that's why they are called as uh, the tolosahunt syndrome in which there is a severe ophthalmoplegic pain so if you have an ophthalmoplegic migraine or a tolosahunt syndrome these cases you may use steroids so corticosteroids is the only Uh, case in these situations when i recommend okay using steroids otherwise in other sixth or third nerve palsies i generally say that one should not use steroids in these cases many of them are diabetics you are worsening their diabetes by using steroids but we need to make people aware because i see many neurologists using steroids just rampantly uh, in these cases so except for tolosahunt syndrome of uh, or uh, ophthalmic migraine one should not use steroids in paralytic strabismus so my uh, next two questions will be for uh, both of you first question is what are the major barriers to a timely intervention in children with squint and what uh, what is it as an ophthalmic community we should do more to improve awareness of squint and its impact on overall development of a child i think you should uh, educate the uh, you know the pediatricians because they are the ones who first uh, you know are dealing with the babies so educating the pediatrician that squint is not a cosmetic uh, surgery and that it uh, you know it is important to restore binocular vision as early as possible so your education begins there more you have to tell the pediatrician that please do a routine referral at about 2 and 3 years of age it doesn't have to be only if they see anything abnormal just a routine examination that would help us screen a lot of uh, pediatric problems even apart from squints so I, i think the education begins from there and apart from that of course educating giving talks to in rotaries and general public meetings where you have uh, you know the lay common person coming mothers and you talk to them i think the awareness starts from there i think i agree with himalini but i would rather say that charity begins at home so we first need to educate our ophthalmologists yeah our ophthalmologists many a times are not aware that squint is a problem which causes uh, uh, affecting the binocular vision and stereopsis and many of the ophthalmologists will say oh come at 17 18 at the marriageable age when you can get it corrected so this is something my first lesson would be that okay we need to educate our own people first 
uh, we need to also uh, make the awareness amongst the pediatricians and parents that stereopsis is such an important thing. Many of people are not aware of the stereopsis. Uh, so when I have a test done at child, many a times I also make the parent look through the TNO, uh, the red and green glasses and see the TNO chart to see what is stereopsis. Many a time they are thinking I am testing red and green with glasses, the color vision. So uh, stereopsis is something which they are not aware. Even the insurance companies, we had to educate and still we are educating them to reimburse. Uh, I mean, three years back, we wrote to PMO, uh, Prime Minister's office, uh, grievance cell and fortunately we got a response from them which is positive and that's why the insurance companies have started uh, giving the uh, reimbursements uh, for the squint otherwise they have been denying till now very very strongly yes sir that letter so, which you have shared on the group is has been very helpful uh, yes, to a lot of yes, my patients sir. yeah correct i mean that is what we need to all use that letter pursue it so that all the insurance companies uh, start and uh, giving it and do not deny it so that Many a times parents who are not aware will be uh, suffering. So we need to ensure that these uh, education is done uh, at various levels. So our uh, associations and ophthalmologists are doing a great job. I think Dr. Jignesh has started this podcast. I would really would like to once again congratulate him for taking this initiative. And I hope many people listen to it. Uh, do you feel in any way school health checkup can help in catching these kids who are in need urgent care? And how uh, how would, uh, should we intervene in school health uh, screening? Yeah, I think that is a good thing. That uh, but usually the school health would start around three or four years, not before. And we are looking at problems to be solved before that age also, like infantile esotropia and all. We need to be correcting prior to that, much prior. So what we would say is that we have to also see that we can use the ASHA or the Anganwadi workers. Use them for uh, seeing that when the child comes for the screening at, uh, for the uh, uh, MMR vaccination around nine months of age, at that time, if somebody can just uh, do a basic screening that he has a squint or not, then that should be uh, recommended for a pediatrician's visit or an ophthalmologist visit. That's it, sir. I think the questions are over. It was a wonderful discussion, sir. Absolutely fantastic discussion, sir. Yeah. 2D point, very practical tips from you and Himalini and very well anchored, Nishita. Yeah, Thank very you. well done, Nishita. Congratulations for moderating it so Thank nicely. You, Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you, Himalini. Thank you, Dr. Thank Dr. Pradesh. Thank you, Man, Dr. Mandar. Yeah, so so before you, we end, end this episode, I would like to say that this was a fantastic uh, uh, learning and I'm sure listeners are going to become far more than squint-wise. And uh, if there is one message which uh, I think listeners need to remember is that we as common Joe ophthalmologists need to be aware of squint as a big problem in the child's development. Catch it at the right time. Refer the child if you are not equipped to handle such situations. Uh, I sincerely would like to thank Dr. Pradeep Sharma, uh, Dr. Himalini and Dr. Nishita for uh, sparing their valuable thoughts and their valuable time for uh, recording of this podcast episode. And I especially would like to thank our honorary president, Dr. Jignesh Taswala, our secretary, Dr. Rajesh Zoshi, and uh, chairman scientific committee, Dr. Ragini Parekh, who has uh, allowed us to start this uh, venture and uh, share, um, create a new platform for uh, sharing knowledge in ophthalmology and beyond ophthalmology. 
so i hope all the listeners will enjoy listening to this epi- episode and uh, get a lot of uh, nuggets of information and uh, practical tips in handling uh, squint in a much uh, efficient and better way and uh, i i uh, thank each one of you once again and cheers and do take care this is a maharashtra ophthalmological society production the podcast team of ophthalmologist includes dr preeti kamdar dr pravin vyavahare dr pravin patil dr rahul tiwari and myself dr mandar paranjpe thank you for listening